Good morning. Lord's blessing to you from all of us at NICE. While we're far away, we're not far away. It's great to be with you uh, when we get the opportunity to be back. Uh, we thank you for your, uh, your gracious, gracious prayers for the ministry of NICE, uh, your resources, your encouragement. Uh, we are blessed. This next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays are IFC Regional at no better place than you could want to be at this time of year than uh, Astoria, Oregon. Uh, and Tuesday, we'll have a dinner, a nice special nice dinner where we get to unveil uh, a new vision for uh, the folks for 2020, and that's what we're calling networking, uh, N-E-T, nurturing our, our ministry family, engaging uh, our IFSA churches through a new ministry we're calling at the Advocate Program, and uh, then training and mentoring. And we're going to talk more about that at the regional. So if you'd pray for that, we would uh, appreciate that. Pray for us at NICE. Lots of things going on, some new ministries, some uh, old ministries just continuing on, uh, encouraging our pastors throughout the Northwest. We're about to begin to uh, depart for a three-week trip through Montana, uh, South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado. Then we're going to fly to a conference in North Carolina, come back, go to Utah, and then end up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, before we get home for about a day. And then we head to Forks, Washington, on the coast for a few days. And then we get back for a day or two before we take off again. Uh, so we ask your prayers. We're on the road and uh, all those things. So Anyway, you're not here to hear me jamble about NICE. You want to hear the Word of God, so I'd ask you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians. You might have notes there in front of you. As I often tell people, if uh, I am sleeping through this and it's a bad message, would you just continue to let me sleep? If it's a good message, wake me up. I want to hear it too. So Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. I've chosen for a title this morning, that of locking arms together. I could just as easily call this hold the line. The latter terminology conveys really taking a firm position or upholding a certain position without backing down. It is to work that way on a football team. We're in football season. Interestingly enough, the church is to hold the line against the enemy and the pressures of the flesh. Reminds me of a Phoenix uh, cartoon in which Lucy uh, demanded that Linus, her little brother, change TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. Perhaps you recognize this one. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asks Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy, Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? asked Linus. Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? I fear too often that the church is like Linus's fingers. They just can't get it together as a force to behold to the world and the culture that we live in today. In a more positive way, the church is to be like Lucy's fingers, individuals that together make a weapon of a force against all odds and enemies. 
Perhaps a few questions are in order as we approach the text of Philippians chapter 1. In what areas do we hold the line and lock arms as fellow believers? How are we to encourage one another to maintain a spirit of working together and maintaining an attitude of unity in a culture that is determined to undermine the Christian faith? If you don't believe that, just jump on the internet, turn the television on. We are in days that we never thought we would be in. This morning, I want to observe four ways we can lock arms together from Philippians 1, 27 through 30, as we hold the line in our Christian walk by being sojourners together, by standing together, by striving together, and then that wonderful one at the end that we just want to be a part of, suffering together. Locking arms together. Let me read Philippians chapter 1. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as I Read verses 27 through 30. If you've not memorized this, this is a great passage to memorize, always have before you. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is destruction for them, but of salvation to you. And that too from God. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake to not only believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Experiences the same conflict you saw in me and here now to be in me. Amen? You may be seated. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we pray that as we gather together, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, that together we would learn those truths that you would desire for us as we move outside of this building through those doors into a world and a culture that is determined to denounce the faith of Jesus Christ and live the way that they would live. Lord, we want to be an example. We want to be the hope that many out there are struggling to see and to be a part of. So we ask your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Sojourners together in verse 27. In reality, there are three emphases that the Apostle Paul draws for us in the first part of this verse. There is an emphasis on priority. Notice again, at least in most Bibles, it ought to be this way. In verse 27, it starts with one word, only. Only. It is a, a shift of extreme importance. And that doesn't mean that the first 26 verses of chapter 1 were of little importance. What it means is that everything up to this point Paul is saying is truly that which is valuable to understand and to know. But when he gets to verse 27, he ratchets up a little bit, we might say, of the extreme importance. Now there's a high priority in what he said and what he's going to say. Nothing else matters from this point on. If we miss 27 through 30, we not only miss the previous verses, but we're really not going to quite understand when you jump into chapter 2, as we'll see here momentarily. Went that long ago, uh, it's been, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago now, that uh, one of our field directors got married, and we have to be over there for the weekend, uh, you know, preaching and talking about nice, and, and he said, you guys... Uh, 
you have the whole house to yourself because we weren't planning to leave for a day or so. Um, it's yours. We're going on a honeymoon. You're not coming with us. And so your house is yours. So there it is. And he had a list of certain things that, you know, just da-da-da-da-da-da-da, be aware of. But then as he began to walk out the door, he said, by the way, there's two other things you need to be aware of. When you come out the garage door from the house into the garage, make sure that door is locked. And then when you go out the garage, make sure you hit the right button so that the garage door comes down. Those two things are extremely important. That's what Paul's saying here. Not that everything else isn't before it isn't, but now only, he says, be aware of something. There's, there's an emphasis on priority. Second, there's an emphasis on identity. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Identity. Points out the identity of the group. He says, yourselves as a congregation, as a group at Philippi, making up that fellowship of believers, those who have a relationship, not only with Paul, but those who have a relationship with one another. That's the local church. We have a relationship. We have an identity. Edgewood Bible Church has its identity. Faith Bible Church, where Catherine and I come from, has its identity. And it's made up by different people that in some respects are similar, but in some respects are different. But it also points out their identity is to be lived out. We are, we are not an isolated group. Once we leave these doors, we still leave these doors as Edgewood Bible Church or whatever church we're part of locally. And so Paul talks about, he says, only conduct yourselves. That's an interesting word, conduct. Some translations, the older translations say conversation, which really kind of throws you off because he's not talking about conversation by way of speech. He's talking by way of, to some degree, behavior. It's an interesting word. It, it actually means citizenship. So only be citizens. It's a political term. It comes from the Greek polis from which we get politics or political. Church often has heard we're not to be political. Yes, we are, but in the right way, the way that Paul says. Now, what you need to understand is that Philippi was a miniature Roman colony. There were a number of them, but the many say that Philippi was the epitome of the larger city of Rome. It was a colony set apart from all the other Roman colonies. Paul would have known this being a Roman citizen. Now, when I think about that, I think about citizenship, and I think of things like citizenship involves culture, like place, ideals, philosophies, language. It involves community, working together. It involves pride as a member of society which, by the way, was very interesting because the Romans took pride in who they were as a member of society. That's why Paul once or twice could say, hey, by the way, guys, better stop. I'm a Roman citizen. It involved loyalty and duty. It came to be used as the right and appropriate behavior 
of a citizen. We need to understand that background if we're to understand what Paul is saying here by way of citizenship. We've, we've lost that, I think, in our, in our culture in many circles. There are still some places, there are still some ideals in some areas, but citizen not only involves culture and community, it also brings about relationships. Citizenship brings about rights. I can now claim if I'm a citizen of the United States of America, I have my rights. Isn't that what we hear all the time now? Problem is, a lot of times we're hearing about, I have my rights, but I'm not a citizen. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Citizenship brings about responsibilities. Citizenship brings about reputation. Citizenship brings about representation. And Paul says, only as a high priority, conduct yourself or behave yourself as a citizen. And what we're going to see, though, is that he's not talking about a citizen of Rome. He's not talking about a citizen of Philippi. He's not advising all of us, even today, a citizen of the United States or a citizen of Washington. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I don't know how many of you, probably the best way I can illustrate this, I don't know how many of you have ever read through the solemn oath that people have to take to become a citizen of America because most of us, I would almost guarantee probably 90% plus most of us here have never had to take the oath because we were born, just like I was in Bremerton, Washington, born a citizen. But here it is, and I want to read it to you because I think it's a great illustration. It says, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and the last four words, so help me God, I'm just waiting for the day when someone stands up and says, we got to whack those last four words off of the solemn oath to become a citizen of the United States of America. But folks, that's what you have to do if you want to be a citizen. You've got to know that. I believe they even memorize it. But they have to repeat that to become a citizen of the United States. What they're really saying in all of that is there's an emphasis there on who we are, what we're claiming to be, who, what, what we're giving up, and what we're gaining in that process. All of that applies to what Paul is saying here, only by way of priority, conduct yourself a citizen, which in many respects, we could take just that and cut it down and say, the reality is you and I are to cut ties with every foreign, any past reputation or service that we had before, which is the flesh and really, ultimately, to the devil himself, who we served. We don't only see an emphasis on identity, but this begins to point out a seriousness of our heavenly citizenship. 
We are children of the king. We are representatives of Christ. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Look over at chapter three with me if you would. Chapter three. And I want you to notice what the apostle Paul says in verse 17 through 20. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That's the earthly citizenship. For our citizenship, our as believers, those who have come to that relationship of Christ as their Savior, knowing the forgiveness of sins. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a citizen of heaven, are you waiting for Christ? Did you wake up this morning thinking this will be the day that he comes to get his citizens of heaven, and then we'll reign in glory with him? He says he'll transform the body of our humble estate into conformity to the body of his glory by exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul says only conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven, not of the earth. We are a royal priesthood, Peter says. So live and act like citizens of heaven, not earth. That, that's really what the whole point is. That's, a, that's the high priority in Paul's mind as soldiers upon this earth, as ambassadors of the king. Not only do we find the emphasis on priority and identity, but we also find an emphasis on standards. And I think this is so important to the church today. Notice what he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The worthiness of the gospel. See, trans. Transformed lives are manifested in how one conducts themselves as believers according to a standard. We all live by a standard. Believer and unbeliever. Believers in the church can be divided on the standard. Folks, this is the standard. You do not live your life according to anything except what this book claims. Amen? That, that's why we have the Bible. Or as the old song says, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Remember what the rest says? I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. This is our standard of living, the word of God. It's not the philosophies that we hear today. It's not good religious novels. It's not even what somebody else tries to tell you. Our standard is this book. And Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel. By the way, the gospel in the initial nutshell is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. However, Genesis to Revelation, these 66 books is what we call the gospel. This is the gospel. And so Paul is saying, it's important that we understand that we conduct ourselves, we live in such a way that our lives match up with the gospel. I am one of those who believes that if you name the name of Christ, then live the name of Christ. There's some confusion out there today. But it's a behavior that's not based on someone else's authority over us. 
I love what Paul says. Whether I come and see you or remain absent. Now, he could have said, I want you to live in such a way you conduct yourself so that when I come, I'm going to see that. No. There was a possibility he could be there, but there was also a possibility he wouldn't, and that did not change the standard of conduct. In other words, I would guess, and I think I'm rightly correct, that the leaders of Edgewood Bible Church would love it that when we go out those doors that we live the gospel and they hear that, whether they ever get to come by your home and see you or could be a mouse in a corner and see what and hear what's going on. They want to know that. Paul says, whether I come or not, that's not the point. I want to make sure that you're living the gospel. Transformed lives are manifested in how we conduct ourselves or the gospel becomes marred to those who are watching that reason why the world is so confused today on some aspects of Christianity? They're seeing it from some of us that make it real and not for others. Someone said this past week that, and I quote, we are a testimony to a watching world. We are a testimony to the watching world, worthy of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, your conduct, the way you live, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What's the standard? The standard of holiness is God himself. So he says, live like God would live. Act like God would act. Ephesians 4.1 says, therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, if you have been called to salvation and you know Christ as your Savior, then we have a responsibility then, Paul says, to walk according to that. In other words, the old adage, walk the talk, don't just talk the talk. Walk the talk. The first way we lock arms together as believers is by understanding the importance, the extreme importance of being sojourners together. Second, you know, it's before you, we lock arms together and we hold the line by standing together. Notice what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. By the way, he probably could have just stopped at the end of the word absence and, you know, or said, ah, that's good enough, but he doesn't. I may hear of you that you are doing something. Locking arms together means there's something that's going to be outwardly seen, and Paul says standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. It's a, it's a military word. Uh, the first part of it deals with a political term. Now we're dealing with the military. Matter of fact, you're going to see in four ways Paul illustrates what he's getting at. He really loved doing that. It's a military word describing the Roman army. Many say it was used of a soldier who stood his ground defending his position at the post. Let me give you an, an illustration it was back in May, uh, May 28th of 2018, well over a year, year and a half ago, that President Trump gave a speech at the Memorial Day service, and this is what he said, and I quote, for more than 80 years, the sentinels of the old guard have kept watch over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Serving in this elite unit is among the most prestigious honors in the United States military. 
while the rest of us sleep, I like that, while the rest of us sleep, we go about our lives through every minute, through every day, through freezing cold, scorching heat, and raging storms. They stand watch. You've probably seen it. Catherine and I have been there personally at Arlington to watch at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. These guys just pouring down rain, wind whipping, and these guys are just, like it doesn't bother them at all. They stand watch. Our our soldiers out there right now in many conditions and many situations standing watch at their post. By way of contrast, it's been a number of months ago now, we saw a young sergeant in the Army in the news for some time. He left his post. He was captured. Men were injured looking for him. At his trial, he was charged with desertion, fined $1,000 a month for 10 months, and got a dishonorable discharge from the army. He did not stand his post. We cannot do that as believers. We lock arms together as believers, and we stand together in one spirit. Now, there's a few things that come to our attention uh, in considering what this means. First of all, it means seriousness of duty. Christianity can be fun. Uh, it can be a blessing. Uh, I, like anybody else, love to have a lot of fun. But we also recognize, I, I, I don't like the opposite, I should say, where everything is just totally serious. Nobody can ever have any fun as a Christian. Well, why in the world would I want that? God, God has a, I think God has a sense of humor, personally. Um, I'm looking at all of you. You're looking at me. Hey, the reality is Christianity can be fun too. But there's a seriousness of duty that we need to understand, especially in our culture today. Because there's a crisis in our culture, and it's affecting the church today. And nothing else matters. That's what Paul is saying here again. It's, it's extremely important, he says, that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. The defenses cannot be let down. You can't go AWOL and do your own thing. This is serious business. We stand together or we die together. There's a relentless determination to be alert, to be aware of what's going on around us today. Do you know what's going on around you in our culture today and how it's affecting the church? That's the thing. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith, in the doctrines, in the thing that you believe to be that of God. Act like men, be strong. Let all that is done be done in love. It means a seriousness of duty. Second, it means relying on God's power to stand firm. It's relying on God's power to stand firm. We cannot in any way or shape do it ourselves. 2 Timothy 1.7, you've already learned, I know. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know, stand firm. It means being strengthened. Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of the glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit and the inner man. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're in the book. We're learning what the book says. We understand that. But there is supernatural power available. There are those times when we think, I just, I can't do it. You can't, but God can. That supernatural power is available that's why we have Ephesians chapter 6. 
where the apostle and the whole aspect of, of the armor of God says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We can do it. Philippians 1, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. 2 Thessalonians 2, stand firm. There, there's a couple favorite words of the apostle Paul through his epistles, and, and they come out clearly in this text as others. Stand firm. And it's much easier to stand firm if you're locking arms with somebody else that's a believer. That's why I love the church local church, but also means cooperation with others. And I love this when Paul says that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one spirit. There's a dependability on others as a unified spirit, not going at it solo or through divisions. If there was a hallmark of the church today that the devil is using and number of churches it's the strife and divisions that are there because he knows that he doesn't have to do anything else that if he can split the church in some way internally amongst themselves, there will not be the united spirit. There will not be the purpose then to accomplish what needs to be done. And there's a oneness that marks our identity as believers that you don't find anywhere else. That here's a group that work together that play together, and that fight together. I just put these words down. Live together, fight together, die together. What a motto. There's a spirit of cooperation. There's a spirit of purpose. I, I love the fact that I know from reading the material and just watching what's going on and talking to the leadership here, you all have a purpose. And they're sharing that with you as leaders. And you're working together to accomplish that, I trust. Strength in partnering together. Paul says over in chapter 2, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of spirit, if any affection or compassion, notice these words. Make my joy complete. How do you do that, Paul? This way. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Why are there divisions in churches today? Because I can almost guarantee you someone or someones have decided it's about them and not about others. And if I had one passage I could recommend for the church, only one passage, it would be those verses I just read. Because that is what Paul is getting at. There is absolutely no way you can conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel be a testimony to the watching world if you're fighting with one another instead of fighting the enemy. If you have no purpose, you have no clue why you're here and what you're doing. Romans 12, 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. And while there are no major doctrinal issues per se in this book, and while typically we say that the theme through chapter one through four is probably joy, I, I wanna submit to you another theme. Whether it rises to that same level or even overshadows 
the joy because perhaps one can't happen without the other. I believe it has to do with unity. Combating individualistic and self-interest as perhaps an underlying issue. That's why he gets about it here in verse chapter one. In chapter two, he talks about it. Chapter three, I can't remember, but in chapter four, he talks about two ladies in the church that were going at it with one another. So all of it seems to be relying on the fact that we have got to stop being individualistic in everything about ourselves, but complete joy comes by being of the same mind and intent on one purpose. The second way, folks, we lock arms is by standing together in one purpose, and one purpose only. Third, we lock arms together and hold the line by striving together. Verse 27, the latter part, Paul says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What is it that we are fighting for? It's, it's the gospel. It's the faith of the gospel. It's, it's that doctrine that we have set aside to say, this is what we believe. Someone once told me, doctrine divides. And I said, you're right. It divides the people who believe it and the people who don't believe it. My view is doctrine unifies because it gives you something to come together around. That's the importance. And while somewhat similar to the statement above, the terminology is a little bit different because now Paul shifts from a political nature to from a uh, mil military nature now to an athletic aspect. The Greek term here that Paul talks about with one mind striving together is sun athleo. That's your Greek course for today, okay? So on the way out, just say, hey, are you, are you involved in sun athleo? Means to struggle along with someone, pretty simple. Struggling along with someone. It was to struggle side by side to win in, in this particular case, Paul's talking about the perhaps the, the games that were out there, probably more specifically wrestling, which is not one of my favorite sports. I was a little tyke. I, uh, I had to do wrestling and PE, and I got whipped every time. I don't like wrestling. It's sweaty. Somebody grabbing you, wanting to hold you down, make you be in pain so you would... Okay, I'm done. I just get on the floor and just, I'm done. Let's not even go through this. But that's the terminology, Paul, the, the aspect of the wrestler. But it was key to the athletic competition with really success of understanding if you're going to be an athlete, there's really two primary things you need to do. You need to be disciplined and you need to live by the rules. And Paul, really in the back of his mind, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, we have to be disciplined around living by the rules. It's that unity that comes of having that. Kind of like the three-legged race. If you're tied with somebody, hopefully you're not dragging them, but if they fall, you get them up and you are trying to, to lock together to get those legs in unison moving in the same direction. That's the illustration here. 
And in the spiritual realm, no Christian will be spiritually successful without discipline. That's why Paul says, discipline yourself toward godliness. I guess the question is, what are we individually doing so that corporately together we can do it that would say, I am disciplining myself toward the aspect of, of godliness? But then there's those things called rules. Break the rules, and guess what? In any athletic competition, for the most part, you are disqualified. But why rules? I mean, after all, the world tells us, shouldn't we be allowed to do whatever we want? Don't rules just keep us from really expressing our true inner self? Our culture says rules infringe on my rights. Aren't rules just another form of manipulation of others? Why can't I run wherever I want to, whenever I want to? And then we can all stand on the podium together and sing Kumbaya. It doesn't work that way. In any athletic competition, you play by the rules. You discipline yourself and you play by the rules. If you don't, you're gone. It's the way it ought to be. We're finding that less and less today and more and more putting arms around and saying, oh, it's, I, I know you disqualified yourself, but no problem, keep going. It doesn't work that way in the Christian life. We don't do whatever we want. That's why we lock arms together. We're going somewhere, we're doing something together. We're of one mind, one purpose, a unity. Paul says here, make sure that you're striving together and you're doing it for the faith of the gospel. That's why we, as leaders sometimes, have to take a lot of painstaking hours to figure out what is it that we believe to be the faith of the gospel. There have been some things handed down for years, but there are other things. That's why in every church I've ever been to, I read their constitution, they all have a doctrinal statement. What they're saying is, is that our church is going to unify ourselves around this. And if you come in and you don't want to unify yourself around this set of doctrines, what we call the faith, then probably there's another church down the road that will. That's hard. But the reality is if you don't do that, and Paul understood this because he experienced it, saw it happening in his day, if you do not stand together on that faith that we believe the Bible teaches, you're going to have false prophets, as Jude said, sneaking in unaware and eventually, boom, false doctrine is in the church. You got to know what you believe and why you believe it. And so Paul says, in many respects, what this includes is a tenacity of mind that pushes forward. Tenacity is that ability to be persistent and determined toward a purpose. That is the heartbeat of the athlete. Discipline, tireless, always pushing forward toward the end process. He wants to make it across the line. But there's also a heart of unity that can't be diminished. That's the thing of locking arms together and encouraging one another. And Paul notes those that are striving together do so with one mind, a unity of heart and soul. And it's never far from his thought that the unity of the brethren is extremely important. That's why we have 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All the members working together. Not an eye saying, I don't have to be this way. I don't have to connect myself with the foot. No, I don't have to connect myself 
as a nose with the ears. I can just do my, no, that doesn't work that way. The unified of body building itself up in love is because it's working in unity. It's striving toward that which is important. And it's working toward that common goal and purpose, that of the faith of the gospel. Paul says, in that way, you're never alarmed by your opponents. It's an interesting word because it comes from the word startled or skittish like a horse would be. Don't, don't be skittish. Don't be startled in that way. So the third area of locking arms together is that of striving together like an athlete, working together to get to the finish line. Last, we lock arms together and hold the line by suffering together. Notice what Paul says. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw me now here to be in me. That is probably the one that we could say, amen, let's just take the three and go home. This is probably the hardest one for us to do together, is to suffer together. But that's really what, what it's all about. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one member suffers, guess what? Everybody suffers because we're a unit. We must see the grace of God in our suffering, especially the persecution for the faith. Folks, we've heard about that already this morning. Directly, indirectly, the persecution around the world, the voice of the martyrs and things that are going on and we don't take away from that. We understand that. That to stand for the faith, yes, we're going to suffer in many respects just because we're getting older. You know, I realize that. I can't do the things I used to do now that I'm in my mid-60s. I understand that. And I realize just around the corner of my 70s, I'm going to even do less. And there are going to be things that, you know, I'm going to suffer physically and, and emotionally. But in many respects, Paul is talking about that aspect of standing for the faith, standing for Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, folks, we need to understand that there's a suffering graciously for God's glory. And you and I have not really had to, to understand that until today in our culture. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s where everything was leave it to Beaver, Mayberry, uh, Little house on the prairie. You know, everybody went to a community church. They all kind of believed the same thing. They all got along. They stood for one another, defended one another. And everybody knew the church was the church. We don't live in those days anymore. Those days are long gone. The crisis in our culture is they don't really care about the church anymore. They don't care if you're religious. They don't care if you stand for the truth. And the minute you stand up and say, Whoa, 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 hold the line. There's going to most likely be some type of persecution. And folks, uh, I, have, I have said this. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm not even the grandson of a prophet. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out we are living in the days in the United States where persecution is now starting to rise to the church. If you stand for the truth, I believe we haven't seen anything yet. I don't believe in utopia on earth till the millennium. And that's not even going to be perfect until the millennium's over and everything is said and done. He says, for Christ's sake, it's been granted. Not only you would believe, that's the easy part, but to suffer. 
A.P. Robertson said, suffering in behalf of Christ is one of God's gifts to us. I want you to notice what he, what he says here. Uh, this is really great. For he has been granted for Christ's sake. That's, a, that's an interesting term, granted. Granted. It, it really means two things. First of all, it's a privilege. Second, it's an honor. If, if for some reason you are suffering at the hands of the world and the culture around you because you have stood for the faith, Paul says that's a privilege that some others don't get to participate in. That's an, that's an honor that is left out by some others. That's been granted for Christ's sake. It's a, it's a test of true character. It's a test of faithful dependence. And he says, you have seen the experiences of suffering. There have been the experience. You saw it in me, Paul says. In Philippians, uh, he goes back then and reminds them in their minds, Acts chapter 16, experiencing what you continue to see to be in me. Paul says in Thessalonians, see that no one is disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know this is what we have been destined for. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you. If you stand for the faith, don't be shocked if there's going to be persecution. That's what Peter and Paul are saying. Be aware. And it's a privilege. You are one of the unique ones that get to do that. That's what he says. Locking arms together means being a citizen together. It means soldiering together. It means being an athlete together. But it also means a sufferer together. So the question is, as we wrap this up, like Lucy's fist, are we clenched together as a single unit, as a force to behold, or individuals doing our own thing? Are we citizens of heaven? Have you committed your life to Christ and become one of the citizens, sojourners together for the gospel? Being a soldier, being an athlete who's striving for one purpose, one mind, to fulfill that ministry. Perhaps you're one that's suffering right now. Realize you're not alone. That's why we lock arms together today. We need that more and more as we walk out of here into a world around us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning that you've given us the privilege to lock arms together as believers, to have a purpose, to strive together toward standing firm on this doctrine that we consider to be the faith. Lord, we know that that may cause some the ruffling of the feathers out there, Lord, and it may cause us some difficulties in these days ahead. But Lord, help us to realize we have other brethren, not just here locally, but globally, that stand for that same truth. In Jesus' name.